0: From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound.
1: We live today in an age of juxtaposition. Today we have a controlled society, a happy society. We have stability. Our capacity for destruction and for dissension mixes with our desire for brotherhood and equality. Our task is to redeem man from his brutish impulses in order that he may realize that the in his nature, a time of hate and of war, a time to love, and a time of peace in this atomic time.
0: Each week on ReSound, we bring you a radio remix of some of the best audio from around the world. We curate, you listen, so that if you happen to, say, not be an Anchorage or ant whistle or Anchor Watt when something really great hits the air, not to worry. In effect, we were. Since we'll be dealing with those strange depths in a man's mind called his subconscious, we ask your attention. Just over a year ago, 11 years after the 9-11 attacks, the U.S. military found and killed Osama bin Laden. But while we were looking and looking and looking, there were some sightings at night in people's dreams. Pike Malinowski peeked into the ethereal world of these dreams to uncover just what bin Laden was doing there.
2: They're taking me down into a cave. It's actually quite well lit. And it just goes deep, 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 deep down into the ground, into this mountainside. And uh, I can hear running water. The pathway widens up into just a huge room down there. There's just hundreds of these guys down there. All these eyes, you know, hundreds and hundreds of eyes start to kind of just peer at me. And out of the throngs of people comes Bin Laden. He's smiling. And he actually surprisingly speaks pretty good English. he says, uh, what are you doing here? I say, well, I'm Seth, Uh, I'm from Chicago, and uh, I don't really know what I'm doing
3: here. I had a dream that I owned a sandwich shop, and one of the workers who worked for me there in the sandwich shop was Osama Bin Laden. And he was, he was a very bad worker. I mean, he would he would show up late for work or not show up at all and not call in. And so I fired him.
4: I have a feeling that there's some kind of problem, uh, but I don't know exactly what it is. And then all of a sudden, Osama bin Laden shows up and, and I'm scared. The same way there would be fear if I just saw a tiger, turned around and saw a tiger or a lion that was, you know, that I thought was about to attack me, but then it turns out that it's, you know, a stuffed animal or something like that. And, you know, when Osama then tells me that he wants to help, then, you know, I decide to help him out too. So I help him by shaving off his beard and we take off his turban and we, we go shopping and we go to Kmart. And so we're walking through Kmart with the shopping cart and, uh, we get in line and come up to the checkout, and Osama offers to pay for me. And he pulls out his credit card. But then I look at his credit card, and I remember it's, it, it was this blue visa. And, and at the bottom, you know, it said Osama bin Laden. And so I realized that that's a really bad idea to, to try to pay with that card. So I tell him that I'll pay, don't worry about it. And Osama, he takes the bag of clothes and he's like holding it, like, you know, really hugging it tightly to his chest for some reason.
2: So at one point during my time with bin Laden in the stream, he takes me into a screening room. It's got red carpeting and the curtains on the wall, the red velvet, very comfortable seats. And actually, uh, one of his people even offers me some popcorn. And uh, bin Laden says, I'm going to put on a film. It's a whole movie from my childhood, my teenage years, actually. He sits down next to me, smiles at me as the film's starting, and it uh, it mostly is in his kind of teenage years, like, you know, formulative years. And he's wearing kind of uh, Western-style clothes, you know, like uh, nice white cotton pants, penny loafers. He doesn't have a turban on. He doesn't look like a religious man kind of looks like a hippie you'd see out in California on like the Venice boardwalk. And he's got a nice red sports car. He's got women in the car. He's listening to rock and roll. Uh, so it's just kind of a montage of all these things, you know? He's cutting glasses. He's Sleeping late. He's, he doesn't care. He's got his own ideas and his own ideals, and he's got his money, and uh, yeah, he's just looking for a different way.
3: So one day I was I was riding down the street on my bicycle. And uh, it's very quiet and deserted, and coming from the other direction, I see Osama bin Laden, and he's, he's riding the, the rustiest, creakiest, squeakiest piece of junk bicycle that you've ever seen. And he stops about 20 paces from me, and I stop, and it's quiet, and we're staring at each other. And he's, he says to me, your days remaining on this earth are strictly numbered. And then he just rides off, creaking and squeaking the whole way.
4: Suddenly, there's a shift in the dream. And I'm at home and doing something on my computer, and I'm alone. And I remember that I have to check out a website that Osama told me to check out. And so I go into this website. And and as I open it, my, my computer bursts into flames and I run out and grab a bucket of water and come in and throw it on my computer and my computer tower that's burning and, and uh, after I do that Osama Bin Laden comes into the room and we have a discussion and I remember it being some type of, of discussion about technology and art and their influences on each other. After we talk for a while I want to try on my sweater from Kmart and well, it seems like the sleeves are too short because my arms are really sticking out really long out of the sleeves. And, and I, you know, show sama and he tells me that the problem is that my arms are too long. And he says that all Americans have long arms, that, that that's really one of the big problems in the world. And, you know, almost, it's, it's, it's right before he was actually, you know, winking at me. You know, he knew that I would understand what he was, what he was getting at. The
1: time has come
2: so the film has ended now, and he's saying, "Seth, you have to go back now." So we shake hands, and uh, you know, uh, he's got a big hand; it kind of envelopes mine, almost like basketball player hands, you know. And then he he walks away. I look back and I see him. I see him walking down the shaft alone. And so then I'm on my way.
0: Osama Dreams, produced by Pike Malinowski for The Next Big Thing out of WNYC in New York. Pike was recipient of a 2004 Richard H. Driehaus Third Coast Festival Director's Choice Award for his piece, 13 Ways. And you can hear that story or dozens of other award-winning documentaries on our website, thirdcoastfestival.org.
5: Ford's in his flivver, All's well with the world.
0: All stop the world. Unexpected things in unexpected places, whether it be Osama in our dreams or any other freaky thing, is what makes our existence remarkable, interesting, and frankly, bearable. At least to me. But, you know, different people look for different things, of course. When producer Marjorie Van Haltren left the United States to go live in France, she was looking for a little peace and quiet, which she found. But underneath the peace and quiet, she found something much more disquieting.
6: It was 1992, around the time of Gulf War Number 1, when I left New York City for France. I wanted a place where I could listen to the inside of my own head. I wanted brick and earth. Eventually, I found a 200-year-old house right on the main street of the Flemish village of Moorbeck, with nothing out my windows but the lowlands and a 12th century church filling up my window where I could hear the news from home. over there And then me in my garden dreaming of the wildflowers that I saw by the sides of the road. Those poppies that dot the fields like an impressionist painting. I try to dig them up and bring them in, but they never quite take. They seem to melt away as soon as I plant them. One morning, November 11th, 2002, Armistice Day, I wake up to an entire marching band coming down the road. A whole group of, of citizens, young men, young mothers, children, stop by to lay a wreath at the memorial across the street, and then they turn and walk away. I realize that I've seen those memorials in every town, no matter how small the town. Legends on street corners and churches, up in the town squares and downside streets, and they say things like, the parish priest, his assistant. The baker, the baker's one. November 9th, 1915, perished here for the glory of France. Everywhere, understated green and white signs, pointing off down country roads and cow pastures. They're marked Commonwealth War Graves Commission, and you follow them down to find rows and rows of headstone after headstone after headstone. Yes, I realize that it is a bit like moving to Anaheim and being surprised to find Disneyland nearby. I swear to you that my innocence knew no bounds. And I mean it when I say that my initial reason for going to Ypres, a half hour away over the Belgian border, was just for that incredible chocolate store. In this store, they sold these tiny doughboy hats and little representations of the men at gate in chocolate. And perhaps that's what drew me to stand under the Menin Gate for real. It's one of the most important monuments of the First World War, and every single night at 8 p.m., they blow the last post. The magnificent town square of Ypres was totally demolished in World War I, and then completely rebuilt brick by brick, church spire by church spire, to its original glory by the citizens. And every day about 40 tourist coaches arrive here. And for those who speak English, enter Dave Wapshot, who will take you down in a small group into the details of history.
1: Now, just to give you some idea of what that would have looked like out there, I have three aerial photos. This is the Germans, they are occupying this area at the time, roughly June 1917. We move on to September 1917 and now you can see things not looking too good. Each white dot there is an incoming shell landing on the German front line at Passchendaele there. That's September, I move on to October and you probably won't believe what you're about to see. It did not exist. Nothing left of the place whatsoever. For your interest, that is not the end of the war. The guys are still fighting down there. You'll see the date 1017. It's nowhere near finished. In a moment, I'll gain a bit more high ground and then you'll start seeing Passchendaele Ridge. That is five miles from there into Ypres. Third Battle of Ypres, or the Battle for Passchendaele, is now being discussed, which is a plan of one final push through here. Germans removed from the sides, thousands of troops through the center, recapture Passchendaele Ridge. From there to there. Devised a plan, kicked ideas around, and they come up with about 60 days, two months, in which to fight five miles up there they went with the plan and sadly they got it wrong it did in fact take 103 days to fight from Ypres and capture Passchendaele Ridge we lost in that battle 245,000 men out here if you step outside the door here and take one large step back to Ypres or to Passchendaele it doesn't matter which direction you go Every time you take one large step out there, 35 men dead. The next step is 70, and so on, and so on. An enormous loss of life. This is high ground. The Canadian attack is coming up the ridge in this direction. What they didn't know was that this was another gas attack. here. They lost 2,000 Canadians on that single gas attack. A total of 18,000 lost their lives fighting for this little ridge that you'll see out here. They were told at this point here, if you ever see a gas cloud coming at you, you simply put your hand into your backpack and you pull out a handkerchief, rag, sock, anything that you could lay your hands on, and then you peed on into it, urinated onto it that the chemical in our pee, ammonia, will automatically filter out chlorine gas for a short period of time. It's a moon landscape, you've had to have your eyes open, you're falling down these shell holes, crater holes and also of course the Germans are following the gas cloud on foot so they're shooting at you as well. And eventually you will be throwing water into your eyes because you can't stand this unbelievable burning sensation. Sadly, they never knew that it was the wrong thing to do because when you put water anywhere near chlorine, it returns back into the chemical hydrochloric acid. And I'm afraid the rest is like a horror film you disintegrate your eyes, your face, and just is gone. So you can understand now why this is a horrendous place for the Canadians, Vancouver Corner. And that's why this is called the Brooding Soldier in Reverse Arms, this monument you're looking at. The Brooding Soldier is simply looking down over all the dead that died in and around the area here. Reverse Arms, it's the only time the butt of the rifle is in the upright position. And that's done because you'll see it done at state funerals and extreme sad occasions. This for the Canadians here is an extreme sad occasion. This is big in the history books for the Canadians.
6: driving home. I don't think of the countryside in the same way anymore and I think of the things that Dave said.
1: Do not touch the weapons with the side of the road. They're all live, otherwise they wouldn't be there. If they've exploded, they've gone. They're vapor. There's nothing. And I want to know more. If you know anything about gardening or farming, you will know that these weapons work their way back to the surface. So when they're digging out those sort of places, enormous amounts of ammunitions come up and of course human remains as well. And when the farmers do find these weapons they put them by the roadside. They'll lean them up against the lamppost, they'll put them in the lamppost. You can see some of them have these convenient holes but conveniently they'll slot the ammunitions in there for bomb disposal to see. They'll lean them against trees, any obvious place that bomb disposal can see them because they drive around seven days a week and they pick up 150 tons to 200 tons of live ammunition every year. That's right, yeah, at the start of this year, he, um, he went out and did a UK tour. I got Back home,
6: to I'm listening to the BBC downstairs and I change it over to a French radio station. And I hear this story about in the town of Caudry, in this region, a 125-kilogram bomb has been found less than 20 meters behind the town daycare
7: center.
6: Bomb experts have been called in. They decided to move the bomb and to evacuate around Three
7: thousand inhabitants within three hundred meters. de I decided to go and see for myself. and One of these gendarmes says,
6: Hey, it's one of yours.
3: Allez vous descendez là, vous allez voir on va vous aller à la mairie. Après la mairie vous avez une place sur la gauche. You know,
6: sometimes people seem to know I'm an American even before I open my mouth.
3: Chief. <laughs>
6: <laughs> I speak to a man from the mairie and he says yes we found a bomb from the second world war an american bomb non,
3: bon, c'est pas fréquent en fait, on a trouvé une bombe de de 125 kg une bombe de la seconde guerre mondiale well, what, what happens, de happens is
6: normally when they dig into the ground uh, for uh, a construction site, sometimes they just turn it up. Et, que and I l- ask l- him, l- does l- this happen l- often? L-
3: and he says, says, well,
6: in the last three years, seven or eight times, I ask him if people l- were l- frightened l- by, l- by l- the bomb l- being there, and l- he l- says, l-
8: uh, l-
6: no, l- but... Uh, It was a lot of work going door to door, explaining everything to them, but in the end, it all worked out really well. You know, there was a lot of solidarity.
3: There's that word
6: the French use, solidarity. People are able to move out and stay with
3: neighbors. It wasn't like the
6: time... We had the bomb on the auto route, and we had to really evacuate thousands of people in the radius around.
3: This time it went pretty well.
6: I guess that was business as usual in the north of France.
7: One
6: night, my neighbor Jean invites me to eat with him. He's a sheep farmer, and he's got chickens, cats, dogs, dogs, birds. He's lived in this house since the day he was born.
7: And I ask him how he spent the Second World War.
6: He says to me, you know that field right there at the corner? I was out in the field when I saw the bomb falling over there, and I saw right away that it fell right there because I could see the smoke rising up behind the church. My father saw it right away, too, and we ran back there, and when we got here, it was a real disaster. You couldn't even get through the street. The power lines were lying on the ground, and...
7: I had a horse
6: that died, and I think it stepped on one of
7: those.
6: Anyway, when we got there, there was nothing left of our house. Everything was...
7: and le grenier, il just resté accroché. And the bomb est tombée dans la cave. Et puis tout a
6: parti. Tu vois la petite, la petite, petite maison
7: left. We rebuilt the whole thing. Oui. Eh ça qui est resté du bombardement. was well, vois la qui est resté la ça ça
6: And we had the whole family here that day, it was a Thursday, I had two sisters and two brothers and uh, they had their friends over because it was a Thursday.
7: It was catechism
6: on Thursday, so my sisters were here with their girlfriends playing in the courtyard. And you know, if it had been in the middle of the night, we'd been all blown straight into the ground, I can tell you
7: that. We were lucky,
6: because the bomb went straight through the house. It crashed to the cellar floor before it exploded. So the whole thing went off way deep underground
7: dans la terre avant d'exploser, donc j'ai un mortil choc et le déplacement d'air il s'est fait devant. Ma mère, la cuisinière, elle était là. All that happened
6: to my mother was that she got her hands burned because she was standing right in front of the hot stove and she put her hands right down on it.
7: and j'avais une qui était ici qui avec nous
6: I had an aunt that was living with us that got hit in the head with a brick. But that's all we had in the way of
7: injuries.
6: I remember that in his sermon that Sunday, the priest said it was a miracle.
7: <laughs>
6: because otherwise, we, everyone would have been killed. You know, however, it did totally ruin us because we were a family of six kids and we were left with nothing. The Red Cross had to take over. They brought us stuff for the kitchen, for example, everything was ruined, broken. We had nothing, nothing. We had to bunk in with people. I went to a cousin. People here in the village were really generous. They put up my
7: sisters
6: Jean then told me about his father in the first world
7: war seven le service militaire c'était ans.
6: He said his father was the class of 11 1911 and pulled the usual 3 years military service immediately after but when he got home from that he didn't even get a chance to take his uniform off because war was declared and they all marched right back out again.
7: Ils se sont même pas déshabillés c'était la déclaration de guerre les soldats qui venaient de finir leur service were et mon père il a eu la chance d'être prisonnier tout de suite il a pas connu la guerre. But he never saw combat, because he was captured right away and taken off to Germany, where he spent the war working on a farm, just like he would have if he'd stayed home. However, one of his mother's brothers was never even
6: lucky enough to get hurt. Well, he says, you know, when you get hurt, they send you home. So he did all the big battles, Verdun, three times,
7: survived being bombed about ten times, but however, two of his brothers were killed.
6: Suddenly, I wondered whether Jean's ever noticed the photo I have hanging in my stairwell of my grandfather from Lansing, Michigan, dressed in his World War One uniform. I've lived with that image of him all my life, and now I can see how cleaned and pressed that uniform is. My grandfather never crossed the Atlantic. He just wore that Doughboy hat for that handsome photo.
1: What I have stopped here for is to show you there's three rows of headstones directly in front of you, running away from the wall. This row here, row to the right-hand side, and the row to the right hand side again. All three rows running away from you there. All those guys in the last 20 months have been recovered from underneath that industrial estate back there. I did tell you that we've recovered some guys recently. Well, those guys now are buried on the front row, the furthest away from you. You'll see the simple plaques laying on the floor there. They have no headstones at this point in time. The furthest one away was buried three weeks ago. He's buried with everything that he owned on the day he died the helmet, the bayonet, the boots, the gun, the bandages. The land of graves. It's all in there. There are
6: thousands lying beneath our feet. That's buried
1: with him underneath that exact spot that you're looking at. Such valuable
6: real estate.
1: Then, because he was recognized as a Welsh Fusilier due to buttons, cap badges, and clothing like that, the captain comes over from the Welsh Fusilier.
6: There are, in fact, over a million German soldiers buried in Flanders from the two world wars. The Germans had to arrange to pay rent on the land, and these burial grounds were especially designed by the German War Graves Commission to fit in more seamlessly with the whims of nature. simply because the losers were going to have to depend on the kindness of local people to tend the graves. And that's the reason why the German cemeteries are places of moss, heather, stone, trees, doves. The cemeteries of the vanquished bear little resemblance to those of the victors. And they're sometimes a lot harder to find. They're quiet. However, if what I'd been looking for was a place where I could try to think this is a good place to start, I wonder how would I have felt on the 11th of September if I had actually been over there instead of over here? But now more and more... There is here and here is there. There is no running from the turmoil of today because our own video screens soon lit up with the horror of the train bombing in Madrid. Our radio has exploded. Au
1: Standard de France bleu on retrouve
8: Virginie qui nous appelle de Nice. Bonsoir Virginie. Bonsoir. Nous vous écoutons. Voilà oui, mais moi je suis très triste. Et puis et puis c'est vrai que bon ben on se dit être être humain. On ben je vais garder être mais humain je pense pas parce que je pense que au niveau des animaux, ils sont beaucoup plus mieux que nous. Mais ce qu'ils ont fait, c'est atroce, c'est atroce, affreux. Oui, encore une fois, on est tous choqués par. Euh, voilà. Alors, euh, bon. Cette ben, violence c'est aveugle, c'est une fois On est plus. en 2004. Moi, quand j'étais petite fille, euh, je pensais que l'an 2000, c'était quelque chose de merveilleux, et je m'aperçois ben, que c'est une catastrophe.
6: She says, When I was a little girl, I thought the year 2000 was going to be something wonderful, but it's a catastrophe.
8: Mais c'est quoi être un être humain là
6: And we're just animals animals. What is a human being?
7: Merci Virginie, je pense qu'on a bien, uh, saisi votre point de vue. Voilà.
6: Jean sits evenings with his TV on and I ask him what he thinks about for example the Iraq
9: war.
7: Si euh, he says that in the beginning
6: um, we all thought they were bah, going départ, to save the world from
7: a disaster
5: le
7: monde, and that's okay and we, we tip our hat
6: qui qui to anyone who can do that without la America la we'd be part des des of Germany by now
7: bah, but I don't think we y y really knew what was going on the Americans want to dominate but Américains, hein? parce que she's devenued a dominator, yeah pucan et puis...
6: I'm getting to know my neighbors. For example, uh, one man who's retired from the SNCF, the National Railway, started talking to me after the night that I had put candles in the window and he, he walked by just as I was writing no to war on the glass with a china marker. The lady in the bakery told me, the problem is we're disappointed with the U.S. because we always thought that they did all of that for us and now we think they just did it for themselves.
10: The First World War began on the 4th of August, 1914 and lasted until the 11th of November, 1918. It involved many nationalities fighting in many different countries. But the longest and bloodiest of the battles were fought in Belgium and France along the Western Front. That's why I thought it was a front. I was wondering why this place got so busted.
6: When my 22-year-old niece ran. visits and from Atlanta, Georgia, I on. take her to Ypres what, what and the Menin Gate.
10: Just showing you the monument. I was already looking at that side of it anyway. But oh, you got chalk your lips. I like that side. So- that
6: But one she up does there. not react to the acres and acres of unquiet graves. In the same way as I do at all,
10: I'm immune to statistics and long lists of names. Tell me why, that's interesting. Because I see them all the time. Name some of the places you see them. Enrollment that. for a university, where you write down your social security number, and that's the most important thing. See, I view all those people in the monuments, and anybody who signs up to be in the Army now is just like, well, I think basically they're killing themselves for no reason. They're asking to die. They're not doing all they can to prevent a conflict. Because instead of killing yourself, I think a human has a lot more potential to mediate conflict while they're alive and while they're able to communicate with people than for just going up and killing somebody else to make a statement. I, I'm—I know their countries that are making them do it, but I mean, it just seems like a, a complete waste. And like these, you don't accomplish anything by. Having ten people shoot at nine people and see how many people die on each side, that's not solving a conflict. Maybe it did about a thousand years ago and it was perfectly okay for that to happen because humans didn't have the communication facility, the mental facility, and the enough in the cultural, the state and their cultural evolution to actually mitigate conflict through intelligence and through conversation.
6: I'm really putting down roots now. I've got some good news. I had my first poppy plants this year. They bloomed and bloomed. And I had read in a book that wild poppies flower when other plants in their direct neighborhood are dead. Their seeds can lie on the ground for years and years, but only when there are no more competing flowers or shrubs in the vicinity. For instance, when someone firmly roots up the ground, these seeds will sprout. The poppy, the symbol of Flanders, over here from over there. Will grow when the ground has been sufficiently disturbed to bring forth the new plants. The poppy is also known as a symbol of sleep. It could be used as a I finally scratched and sometimes the surface. Medical doctors used it in a higher dose to put the incurable wounded out I'm there. saving
0: the seeds for next year. Unquiet Graves, produced by Marjorie Van Haltren and Helen Englehart, an intercontinental producing team that also goes by the name Entre Deux Amis. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival. I'm Gwen Maxey.
1: It transports our minds into a beautiful sleep filled with wonderful images. Uh, Next.
0: You know producing a radio show is like writing a carefully crafted letter, shoving it into a corked bottle and throwing it out into the proverbial sea. Ah oh, maybe a poetic image, but really it is more than a little unsatisfying because we always want to know who finds the bottle. Which means we always want to hear from you. No bottle required, just send us an email. We're at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org
5: time, speak trouble time, speak troubled time, speak trouble time, hey, you time, listen to me. Speak, you can't time, win this way. Speak follow the rules. Play the game. Be happy.
0: Veteran Ed Kiyahara fought in the four hundred and forty second Regimental Combat Team, the most decorated military combat unit in history, and returned from World War II with a purple heart. But the hero's welcome he received was in stark contrast to the way the war began for him and many other Japanese-Americans incarcerated in U.S. internment camps. In our next story, Ed tells his nephew, radio producer John Watanabe, about one small way he coped with being considered an enemy before he became a soldier.
5: When the war broke out, I was in Washington State College in about April my brother asked me to return to the farm and help, so I returned. We were evacuated out of our farm uh, in May, I think. Most of the people were evacuated like Seattle and, and Tacoma, they were taken by train to uh, Puyallup or Tule Lake. All they, uh got to take to camp was uh, one suitcase of belongings. Since we were close, uh, we had our friends drive us uh, to Pialup. It was only three miles. We had uh, typical army barracks. I would say it was, uh oh, 20 by 20 for a family of five. There's a bathroom, central bathroom on each uh, block, we'll say, and and there's a central kitchen. There were no playgrounds or any area that you could play uh, any sports in, but it was just crammed in there and with hundreds of families in one area. It was hard for my mother who raised this in our farmhouse and then had to leave everything. Every day there was a truck come by and pick up 55 gallon barrels full of garbage. They took it up on the hill above Sumner and they dumped it and uh, they had, uh, oh, three or four fellas on the flatbed truck taking it up there and dumping it into the garbage one day i i thought gosh they're going right by my hometown maybe i can sneak a ride and and go into sumner so one day i asked the black truck driver she hey how about taking me to drop me off in sumner and pick me up on the way back and, and so i can uh, visit some of my friends and and have an ice cream cone or, and uh get away from here." Took me a couple of days to talk him into it. I didn't pay him or a darn thing because I didn't have any money to pay him. He felt sorry for us. Being a black man and being in camp, uh, he, he knew the discriminations and he had a rough time himself, so he said, oh well, I'll take a chance. So every now and then, I would uh, get on the garbage truck, sit in the back with the garbage, and we'd get into going by Sumner Main Street. He'd slow down, and I'd jump off and go to my friend's ice cream shop and have a sundae or banana split or something. What
9: would have happened to you if you'd gotten caught? Do you have any idea?
5: I imagine they would throw me in jail. It was illegal for us to be running around without a permit uh, out of camp in the wartime. And how long would you stay in the ice cream shop? Well, it took about a half an hour for the truck to go up to Sumner and dump the garbage and come back. So I had to make sure that I was at that right corner so I can, you know get on that truck and go back to Piala. I had to be there. I didn't want the uh, driver to get in trouble.
3: Did the other guys on the truck ever ask you for, to get them ice cream cones?
5: <laughs> yeah, I used to get them ice cream bars because it's kind of funny them going through Sumner with a cone in their hands. That's not the best job in the world, going on a garbage truck. It's a funny thing, nobody knew why I was going on a garbage truck. They were wondering, how come I volunteered to go on a garbage truck? And my folks were a little unhappy that I was doing that because they knew it was illegal and I'm the only one that that's doing it. But as a young boy, why, I loved to take chances. It didn't bother me if I got caught or not. So every now and then I would be stopped by the Sumner police chief and he'd, he'd ask me not to, please do not walk up and down the city streets because somebody might decide to turn you in. So I spent most of my time in the ice cream shop, didn't have any money. So the owner said, you don't never need money. It's very hard for me (laughs) to tell you that story because there's a lot of kind people back in my hometown that I'll never forget.
0: Uncle Ed was produced by John Watanabe for The Morning Show on KPFA in Berkeley, California.
10: Our world has taken
5: so many steps in the wrong direction. The price of liberty and even of common humanity is eternal vigilance. Naturally, civilization has improved on all that.
0: Okay, so in our next story, we have a young political Afghani refugee. We have an American child of missionaries in Greece. And we have an all white high school choir singing a medley of songs from the all black musical The Wiz. And oddly, they all come together in our next story.
11: October 2001. The U.S. military had just accidentally bombed a Red Cross hospital in Afghanistan. Well, I mean, they didn't accidentally bomb, they just, the the bomb accidentally hit the Red Cross hospital. I was traveling in Greece, where I had grown up. My parents were evangelical missionaries there. And I met a group of refugees from Afghanistan the same day that the pictures of the bodies that had been strewn from this hospital, were all over the television sets in Greece. And they were uh, eager to talk, particularly one man named uh, Zahir, who spoke uh, English quite well. And he started telling me a story about how when he was 15 and he was living with his uh, father and mother, his father was very uh, high up in the Taliban regime, and he saw that his father was beating his mother. and He said, that's not right. And then he saw that the people who were working out in the fields to grow all of his food had to sleep outside in the middle of the winter. And he said, that's not right. And he decided he was going to sleep outside on his roof one day to see just how cold it was. And it was miserable. And he decided that it wasn't right for him to sleep inside of that house while the people who were growing his food had to sleep outside. And so he left. He, at 15, ran away from home, wandered around Afghanistan, finding books to read wherever he could to help him be able to imagine a world that was better than the one that he grew up in. He read primarily in English. There were books that were around, I guess, from from missionaries um, that were English translations, and he'd learned English and had read virtually everything. He'd read Kafka, he'd read Dostoevsky, he'd read Joyce. At one point, I was telling him, you know, I think I might wanna go to graduate school, but I don't know, I'm gonna go this year, I'm gonna wait, maybe I'll just wait and go next year, you know? And he said, oh, that's very American of you. Reminds me of a book I read. I can't remember the title, but it took place in the American South. The main character, well, her name was a color. I remember that. She always said, Tomorrow is another day. Yeah, Scarlett O'Hara, Gone with the Wind.
5: Allow me, Miss O'Hara. I get so bored I can scream. What a woman!
11: I hate you And he had gone from Afghanistan into Iran. From Iran, he had gone to Turkey. From Turkey, he had found his way to Bulgaria. From Bulgaria into Greece. He felt like it was his mission to speak out, to let people know what was happening in his homeland and speak out against the war. I
5: think it's hard winning a war with words, gentlemen.
11: And as he started telling me about the global economy and the things that he had learned about the ways in which American consumer habits feed into American imperialism and uh, the ways in which, you know, the main brand clothes that I was wearing were connected. With the children who had been killed in that hospital, you know? Not directly, but not entirely indirectly either. And I could feel those logos sort of searing into my skin. And it was one of the most awkward moments of my entire life. Seeing him staring at me, and he smiled, you know? But there was so much pain in his eyes. And he chain-smoked. Every five or six minutes, another cigarette, another cigarette, another cigarette. And my heart went out to him, but I felt so complicit. And he said to me, you know, Bush, Bin Laden, they have a problem. You and me don't have a problem. But I just, you know, wasn't sure what to say.
9: going to have a good time today.
11: And then I remembered that when I was 15, the most important thing in the world to me was being in the high school show choir. And so I started to tell him about the Wheaton North High School Show Choir, all-white production of the Wiz and Sister Act songs in medley. And I started doing the dances for him, singing the songs, half in Greek, half in English, so that everyone could understand it. Ease on down, ease on down, to Dromo with a box step. Jazz hands flashing around that described the red cummerbunds and the sequins that glimmered on them, the little bow ties, the dresses that the girls would wear, having we would spin them around in front of the veterans of foreign wars, no less. And partly because of the frenetic energy of the nervousness of the situation, I think I gave a pretty uh, stellar performance. You're an idiot.
5: A spoiled, silly brat that needs a hairbrush every now and then. Heaven help the Yankees if they capture you.
11: And Zahir could not stop laughing falling on the floor, holding his stomach, pointing at me, you know, invited me back to the refugee center and had me do the performance again. But this time, for there were about 40 people from Iraq, from Afghanistan, from Turkey, there were people there from Sierra Leone, people from Eritrea, people from Sudan. And they all sat on they the bunk beds and watched mean, me yeah. do my little oh, yeah. dance. And most down. of them laughed oh, pretty hard. I think my favorite part was the children who pointed at me and said, You? You? America? You, America? And I just tried to imagine what the contrast must have been like for them. You know, like your association with America is bombs that drop on homes and hospitals. And then you see this buffoon doing these ridiculous dances. And Zahu said to me, you know what? We are refugees. They give us food. They give us water. They give us shelter. Sometimes they get us work. But they forget. They forget that we need to laugh.
0: Ease on Down was produced by Michael Kraskin and David Terry. If you want to hear more of their work, we have a link to all the episodes of Catalog of Ships on the ReSound page of our website at www.thirdcoastfestival.org. Free Sound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world, and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Dojo, a full-service digital agency. On the web at dojo.com. Dojo, we fuel ideas that grow. The Third Coast Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, the Agadino Foundation, and the Menaki Foundation. This program is partially supported by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.